Being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. We've seen a force that would shatter our nation rather than share it, would destroy our country if it meant delaying democracy. And this effort very nearly succeeded. But while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. That moment of democracy inspiration was Amanda Gorman, the youngest inaugural poet in U.S. history, reading from her poem, The Hill We Climb, at the inauguration of President Biden in January. I'm Jason Franklin. It's Tuesday, June 1st. And moving from January to June, here at One for Democracy, we're keeping our eye on five key issues this week. First, the outcome and implications of Friday's Senate vote on the January 6th commission, the latest voting rights development in Texas and across the country, commemorations today of the Tulsa race massacre, latest developments for COVID diplomacy, and some search for insights into how conservative the Supreme Court is becoming in their final decisions expected this month. First, last Friday, Senate Republicans, as expected, blocked a bill to create a formal investigation of the January 6th insurrection with a 9-11-style panel. As we all know, that day's assault left five people dead and about 140 police officers injured, but only six Republican senators sided with Democrats to launch an investigation, falling short of the votes needed to overcome the filibuster. Now many expect Democrats to shift their attention to the joint investigation by the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee and the Senate Rules and Administration Committee as the best avenue to bring details of the day to light. Republicans in the Senate chamber faced intense pressure to vote down the bill from Mitch McConnell, who objected to the proposed legislation, arguing that such a commission could prove politically problematic for the GOP ahead of the 2022 midterms. The willingness to ignore truth in favor of political power and fear of attack from President Trump continues to drive Republican politics, as we saw on Friday. With the Senate set to take up Senate Bill 1, the For the People Act, at the end of June, I would also say to expect Senate Majority Leader Schumer to set up several other filibuster-type votes before then. While these votes, like the January 6th Commission vote, are attempts to move forward critical work, they're frankly also political theater designed to demonstrate Republican resistance to bipartisan compromise both to convince Senator Manchin from West Virginia in particular to amend or revoke the filibuster and to provide him political cover if he chooses to do so. So from Friday to Sunday, we move over to Texas, where Democrats walked out of the Texas State House to block the latest efforts to pass major voter suppression legislation. One by one, Democrats left the House chamber until there was no longer a 100-member quorum needed to pass Senate Bill No. 7 leaving Republicans with no choice but to declare what they'd been touting as the most conservative legislative session yet to be essentially over. While Texas already has very strict voter laws, this would have heightened them even more. New requirements on absentee voting, a ban on both drive through and 24-hour voting, reducing polling hours, and more. However, Governor Greg Abbott has said he's, quote, not done trying to pass this type of legislation, and he quickly announced he'd order a special session to finish the job although he's not yet set a date for that new special session. Elsewhere, while the pace of voter suppression laws is slowing as state legislative sessions end for the summer, the Arizona legislature passed a bill threatening felony prosecution against election officials who send a mail ballot to a registered voter who didn't request one, although they did vote down a bill 
that would have required voters to provide their driver's license or one of a few other specific ID numbers to have their completed mail ballots counted. And in Alabama, the governor signed legislation banning poll workers from bringing ballots outside to voters who couldn't get into a polling place due to a disability. On the positive side, Connecticut made progress on the voting rights front, ending prison gerrymandering last week, moving forward an omnibus bill that includes expanding voter eligibility, automatic voter registration, and easier absentee voting, and they're preparing to vote on constitutional amendments to establish early voting and no-excuse absentee voting, which could pass the Senate as early as this week. Finally, yesterday marks 100 years since a white mob began killing hundreds of black people in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and burned their neighborhood of Greenwood, often referred to as the Black Wall Street, to the ground. After a black man was falsely accused of rape, white residents killed as many as 300 black residents, injured hundreds more, and burned and looted hundreds of homes and businesses, leaving thousands of black Oklahomans homeless. They carried out the assault by ground and by air, with support of law enforcement, including police and National Guard. And in the aftermath of that violence, white Tulsans worked to repress what happened. A hundred years later, investigators are still searching for mass graves, and no one has been charged with any crimes related to the Tulsa Race Massacre, one of the worst episodes of racialized violence in U.S. history. President Biden spoke today in Tulsa to mark this anniversary, the first president to participate in remembrance of the destruction of Black Wall Street. He announced plans to bolster homeownership and small businesses and communities of color, but many Black and social justice leaders are continuing to call for much more aggressive measures to support our collective healing from a legacy of racial violence, and calls for reparations to truly address both the history of slavery and systemic racism in our country, and the violence that occurred 100 years ago in Tulsa itself. On the COVID front, the U.S., as we know, is turning a corner. More than half of all adults have now been fully vaccinated. We have the lowest new infection rates in nearly a year. And in good news for many of my friends, Costco is bringing back free food samples in its aisles. As it does so, President Biden has promised to donate 80 million doses of vaccines to other countries by the end of the month. But the White House has yet to say how it will choose recipients of that first stock of shots or when it will expand its supply efforts. It appears that most of those doses will go to COVAX, the UN-backed global vaccine sharing program meant to meet the needs of lower-income countries. But up to 20 million doses, 25% of this initial pledge will be held for, quote, the U.S. to dispense directly to individual nations of its choice. While more than half of all Americans have had at least one vaccine shot, fewer than 1% of people across the world's low-income countries have been vaccinated, leaving Biden with some critical decisions about vaccine diplomacy, how much it focuses on aiding allies versus courting new friends, whether it targets hotspots in an attempt to strategically rein in the global pandemic, and of course, how to address global economic inequality and the impacts of COVID. And finally, as we head into the closing month of the 2021 Supreme Court session, court watchers are looking at both the optics of these last few decisions coming from the court and the implications from these last decisions for policy itself. On the optics front, Amy Coney Barrett's appointment transformed the Supreme Court from one with a slight conservative majority into one clearly tilted right by a 6-3 margin. This leaves Chief Justice Roberts with dramatically reduced power to guide the court's direction on controversial cases. 
While Roberts has tried at times to preserve the court's appearance of nonpartisanship, watchers are looking for how stridently conservative both Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh proved to be in the final cases this month, to get a preview for cases that will begin in the fall and how rightward tilting the court's trajectory may become. While most experts agree on the likely outcome of the last few big cases this year, how narrow or broad their rulings are and the language used will be very closely watched. For example, in California versus Texas, conservatives are yet again asking the court to invalidate the Affordable Care Act, but it does appear that justices will uphold the ACA based on the questions they were asking during oral arguments back in November. However, if they foreshadow approaches to curtail the law in their decision language, get ready for many more challenges next year. Second major case is Bronovich versus the Democratic National Committee. Most court experts expect the court's conservative majority to uphold two Arizona measures that require election officials to discard ballots cast at the wrong precinct and to make collecting ballots from multiple people and delivering them to a polling place a crime. The larger question, though, is whether this ruling will be so broad that it effectively endorses the new voter suppression laws that Republican state legislatures have passed and continue to push forward this year. And finally, with timing that will only be magnified because it's Pride Month in June, on the religious liberties versus LGBT equality front, the court will rule on Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia, like many other municipalities, uses private contractors to screen foster parents and Catholic Social Services, an affiliate of the Catholic Archdiocese of Philadelphia, is suing for its right not to place children with same-sex couples in defiance of the city's anti-discrimination policy. This case is fundamentally about whether same-sex couples deserve the same protection against discrimination that other communities, including people of color, receive, or whether religious groups can define marriage as being only between a man and a woman in defiance of federal recognition of same-sex marriage. Many expect the conservative majority to rule in favor of Catholic social services, which would be a major blow to marriage equality, making clear that LGBTQ Americans cannot expect the same protections as other groups, and it could open the door with this newly conservative majority to revisit its ruling on marriage equality overall. So some big decisions coming out of the Supreme Court in this final month of its current term, and some indications of how far the court is going to go in the coming year or two and beyond. Thanks for joining us to hear a quick review of the key issues of the week as we talked about the developments on voting, the January 6th insurrection, and more that offer insight into how far right the Republican minority in Congress, state legislatures, and the Supreme Court are heading to the latest calls for actions on racial justice and global inequality and COVID response. I'm Jason Franklin. It's Tuesday, June 1st, and thanks for joining 10 Minutes on Democracy.